Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the August 23rd episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. As always, you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Twitter and Instagram under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to our poetsandmuses.com website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Joining me today is Leo Boykes, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Unholy Family, and my poem, That Single Memory. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of August 24th. On Monday, August 24th, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. British Standard Time, Time to Change Birmingham will be hosting their Let's End Mental Health Discrimination Poetry Jam with the themes of stigma and change. This will be emceed by Arun Kapoor and Sabika. You can find out more information and register by going to Birmingham TTC on Twitter. Again, that's Birmingham TTC on Twitter. Birmingham is spelled B-I-R-M-I-N-G-H-A-M. At 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Nuijinan TV will be hosting the 16th episode of its 20-episode series, The Nuijinan Wind Carriers Challenge, where anyone can participate but only indigenous youths between 8 and 25 are eligible for the prices with a grand prize of a MacBook Pro. You can find out more information and register at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 644-547-309-458-680. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 644-547-309-458-680. From 5.30 to 7 p.m. Arizona time, the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting the first of its two media misrepresentation workshops with our past poet guest, Sean Avery. You can find out more information by going to piper.asu.edu forward slash classes. Again, that's piper.asu.edu forward slash classes. From 6 to 7.30 p.m. Arizona time, the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting their Right Here, Right Now, Punks and Poets of Color with our past poet guest, Amber McCrary. You can find out more information about that and register at piper.asu.edu forward slash write hyphen here hyphen write hyphen now. Again, that's piper.asu.edu forward slash write hyphen here hyphen write hyphen now. Write is W-R-I-T-E. From 8 p.m. Central Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his weekly Poets Playground open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's poets underscore playground underscore. On Tuesday, August 25th, from 6.30 to 9 p.m. British Summertime, the Poetry Translation Center will be hosting the second of its two online workshops with Sri Lankan Tamil poet Anar. You can find out more information about that at poetrytranslation.org forward slash events. Again, that's poetrytranslation.org forward slash events. From 8.30 p.m. to midnight Paris time, Spoken Word Paris will be hosting its Spoken World Online with the theme of Exile featuring Nina Zivansevich. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 3325-704-278-70093. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 
427-870-093. From 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting its first strap open mic, which is a virtual writing workshop and open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23, and it's facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information by going to urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 5 to 5.30 p.m. Arizona time, Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting their Speak Poet via Instagram Live at Arizona Masters of Poetry. Again, that's at Arizona Masters of Poetry. On Wednesday, August 26th, from 7 to 8 p.m. British Summertime, Carcanet Press will be hosting Growlery by Catherine Horex, an online book launch. You can find out more information about that by going to carcanet.co.uk. Again, that's carcanet.co.uk. Carcanet is C-A-R-C-A-N-E-T. From 8.30 p.m. Beirut time, Sidewalk Beirut will be hosting its weekly online open mic. You can find out more information by going to facebook.com forward slash Sidewalk Beirut. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Sidewalk Beirut. Beirut is spelled B-E-I-R-U-T. Join them at 8.15 if you want to sign up to read. From 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Nuijinan TV will be hosting Nuijinan Scott Talon, which showcases indigenous youths between 13 and 25. And you can RSVP and get more information at Nuijinan TV. That's N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N-T-V. Again, that's N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N. TV. From 8 p.m. Eastern Time, a poet named Superman will be hosting his release therapy open mic via Instagram Live at a poet named Superman. Again, that's a poet named Superman. On Thursday, August 27th, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, the Tiny Cover will be hosting its weekly virtual poetry night. You can find out more information and sign up at thetinycover.com forward slash events. Again, that's thetinycover.com forward slash events. From 7 to 8 p.m. Arizona time, Phonetic Spit will be hosting its weekly open mic via Instagram Live at Phonetic Spit. That's P-H-O-N-E-T-I-C-S-P-I-T. Again, that's P-H-O-N-E. T-I-C-S-P-I-T. On Friday, August 28th, from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Books Are Magic will be hosting its LGBTQ plus open mic with George Abraham and Luther Hughes. You can find out more information by going to facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 118-889-973. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 118-889-973-813-3317. From 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Marquis 10,000 Burton will be hosting his live poetry freestyling via Instagram Live at 10,000 Poetry. Again, that's at 10,000 Poetry with 10,000 spelled out. On Saturday, August 29th, from 5 to 5.30 p.m. Arizona time, Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting their Speak Poet Saturday via Instagram Live at Arizona Masters of Poetry. From 6 to 7 p.m. Arizona time, Poetry on Roosevelt Row will be collaborating with Mission for Arizona to host Poetry as Activism. You can find out more information about that at Poetry on Roosevelt Row. Again, that's at Poetry on Roosevelt Row on Instagram. 
Roosevelt Road is spelled R O O S E V E L T R O W. Again, that's R O O S E V E L T R O W. From 6 to 7 30 p.m. Arizona time, Mass Liberation Arizona and Palabras Bookstore will be hosting their As We Speak, a Black Artist Showcase. Our past poet guest, Sean Avery, will be among the artists being showcased. And you can find out more information by going to Sean Avery's Instagram at skinnyblackshawn. Again, that's skinnyblackshawn. That's S K I N N Y B L K S E A N. Again, that's S K I N N Y B L K S E A N. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Leo Boykes. Hi, Leo. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hello, Imogen. I'm, I'm delighted to be here with you today. Yeah, I really appreciate this. So, you brought with you your poem, Unholy Family. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm an Argentinian poet. I was born in Buenos Aires、mm-hmm. in the 70s and, and came to the UK、um, with 21 years of age and began writing poetry since I was a child.、Uh, in the UK, I was also a journalist and translator,、mm-hmm. and I've been publishing my poems. In, in various journals and newspapers, and also I published two collections in Spanish、mm-hmm. in Argentina, and,、um, and I'm about to launch my debut collection in English、uh, next year with Chatham Windows with Penguin Random House.、Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be、uh, a busy year for me. I forgot to say that apart from being a translator and a poet, I'm also an educator, I, I teach poetry. I run poetry workshops with young students in schools in London, and I'm a part of a board member at the Poetry Translation Centre,、okay. um, advising this organisation in London on Latin American and Latinx poetry and poets.、Hmm. And also very much involved with a poetry magazine here in the UK called Magma Poetry. I'm a board member as well of the magazine. And I just edited the first issue dedicated to Latin American and Latinx poets and poetry, which we called Resistencia.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was launched in, back in April. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.、Um, so that's pretty much a sort of、um, summary of my work or my life in, in,、uh, in terms of、um, my, my writing life.、Mm-hmm. I actually went to one of the Poetry Translation Center events, and I, I'm going to try to go to more of them because they're really amazing. I run a, a series of poetry workshops with them, translating、mm-hmm. an Argentinian poet called Sil- Silvina Giaganti、mm-hmm. and also a Chilean poet called Damsi Figueroa.、Mm-hmm. So I, I, I sort of specialize in, in Latin American poetry. So it's, it's been yeah, fascinating. It's, it's a really exciting place because.、Um, Loads of people go there,、uh, and you can sort of translate a poem collaboratively.、So mm-hmm. A group of people will gather, and between all the, the, the participants, you, you translate this poem with the help of a, a translator who is sort of bridging between the, the original and the final text.、Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I haven't. Certainly haven't participated in that exercise, though I do write in different languages. That's why I always invite poets who write in more than one language to send whatever poetry in whatever language they prefer, because I think it's important for us as a global community or even as an American to listen to other languages.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, And in terms of your own poetry, can you tell us a little bit about how you arrived at、uh, writing poetry? Well, it's really interesting. I think I always wrote poetry since I was very young. I studied literature in Argentina and Buenos Aires,、mm-hmm. and、um, I immediately began writing journalism.、Mm-hmm. Um, but、I、kept my my sort of fiction and, and poetry on the side. And then when I came to the UK. Slowly, I began taking part in in different groups and、uh, especially Latin American groups.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually a founding member of a collective called Slap,、uh, Spanish and Latin American poets and writers, 
mm-hmm. and, and and there I showed my work, and then it, you know we we um, presented the work, we we performed the work in London and various other places, and then I selected to be a part of a scheme in the UK called, called the Complete Works, uh, which is a scheme that makes all uh, poets from different ethnic and minority backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I got selected, they select 10 poets, and I got selected and I got a mentor. I was the first Latinx poet to be included in the scheme, and it's a very successful scheme in the UK. Mm-hmm. You, you get assigned a, a very well-known editor mm-hmm. or poet who works with you for two years, and then there is an anthology published by a very well-known publisher, Blood Arts Books, here in the UK. So it was a brilliant, brilliant scheme. I, I, my tutor was Michael Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the uh, editor uh, and founder of Carpenet Press in the UK, and also the editor of PN Review, a very well-known magazine here, poetry magazine in the UK, mm-hmm. a very learned um, editor. Uh, so I worked with him for two years, and then I, I was included in the anthology 10 Poets of the New Generation, mm-hmm. uh, published by Bladax in 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, I got published in, in various magazines in the US, in Europe, uh, and in anthologies. And, uh, so it's kind of evolved from there. I would say before I was writing mostly in Spanish, and let's say in the last five years, I began writing in English more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I still write in, in Spanish, so I, I am truly bilingual poet. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting, very unusual part. Mm. My my one, because, uh, you know, I began in writing in Spanish and then I published collections in Spanish. And then because I was in the UK and I have been living here for so many years, I thought that I, I would try writing in, in, in English. It was a, it was a big challenge. Some people were saying to me, you know, you shouldn't write in, in another language, especially poetry. Mm. Uh, you should write in your mother tongue mm. uh, rather than in English because English is not your first language. Right. But then I thought, you know, I, I live in the UK, my friends are here, my life is here, my partner is here, so why not write in poetry in the, in the country I am I'm, I'm living in? Yeah. And also to show my, my Portugal friends and, and my closest uh, people rather than have to translate constantly from Spanish into English. Right. So that's how it began. And mm-hmm. I began writing in English more and more. And um, I would say now I write more in English than in Spanish, but mostly because I'm working towards my collection yeah. uh, coming up next year. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, you know, as I said before, I, I do translations. So I'm, I'm interested in, in what, what happens in between languages and what happens, you know, when you, I, I use Spanish words in my English poems and, um, and the other way around. And so I'm interested in what happens between languages and in translation and and those sort of issues, yes. Mm. In terms of your latest collection that you're working on, you said that you do include Spanish words in your English poems, but are you going to actually have some poems where it's written in both languages? I, I mean, like, maybe you wrote the Spanish version first, and then you wrote the English version, and so you have both versions in the book, or will you just have English or predominantly English poems? Uh, it, it will be mostly in English, but there is a, a sequence of poems based on a. On a I, I translated a, one of my favorite poets from Peru, mm-hmm. uh, Jorge Eduardo Ayerso, mm-hmm. and so I basically translated his Spanish poetry into English, mm-hmm. and then I responded with my own versions mm-hmm. in English. Uh, so there are these you know, the translations and then my versions, and then so you have Spanish and English, and in a way, yeah, that's that's what happens. But and I think there are a few poems that I have in Spanish and then English, but they're mostly they're mostly in in English. Mm, okay, it's always interesting as a poet who publishes. You always have to think of audience and, and market and and such when you get into the business of poetry. So I do find that some of the poets that I've interviewed whose mother tongue might not be English, when they're trying to enter the English market, which seems like a larger market from what I can understand from their professional steps they're taking, that uh, they do choose to 
have collections that are mostly in English. So I think in, in, in my case, it wasn't. I wasn't really thinking about well, this will reach more audience if I write it all in English. It really happened more, more organically, I guess. Mm-hmm. I was writing more poems in English, and I wasn't even translating my work from Spanish into English. I was writing directly in English, yeah. and in fact, I do write differently in those two languages. I I think I'm a different poet in Spanish than in English, mm-hmm. uh, which I find. It I find you know quite quite interesting. I yeah. guess <laughs> I am a different person when I speak Spanish than when I speak English, and and that's something quite common. Um, you know, every time I go back to Argentina, they and speaking Spanish, some people know know that I do have maybe an accent or I use certain words that yeah. are not from you know there. You know what I mean? There are sort of yeah. signs and and sort of um, moments where where you, there's this different there's this kind of rupture or all this kind of um, separation, I don't know how to call it. So in a way, yes, I, I do feel like here in the UK I'm, I'm a different persona, I'm a different person than Leo from, from Argentina. So when I write in English, I, it's almost like sculpting because language is outside me in a way, so I just mold it differently. Right. Um, I think I'm more interested in form mm. in English and less so in Spanish that somehow comes from a different space and different place mm. uh, within me. I guess it's kind of embedded somehow. And also because I left Argentina over 20 years ago. Mm. You know, I do speak Spanish with my partner, who mm-hmm. uh, is originally from Argentina, but lived here since in the UK since he was four. Mm. Um, I have a different relationship to the language than if I were living in, in, in Argentina. Mm. That's probably why I write in, in English in a different way. Right. Mm. I think you know, whatever our life experiences seeps through and the acquisition of a new language is also part of a life experience, right? So it does come through. I remember when I was living abroad, when I came back to the U.S., people also detected an accent. But because I... Uh, I'm Asian American, and because of the prejudice that exists here, I think they just attributed the accent to me being Asian rather than having lived abroad and carrying that accent with me. So it's always interesting to see how your life experiences change the way you are as a, as a person and also the writing as well. So it's nice to hear you explain a little bit how you use the language differently. So if you don't mind reading your poem on Holy Family for us, then we can talk about it. Of course, yes. Thank you. Yeah, and Holy family. At least as unholy as my mother, she brought me home wrapped in newspaper sheets. Bad news this time. Born before disaster struck. Father killed in pure pups. Foam spilled from buckets of black water. Younger sister burned dull. Old sister ran away on a truck. Our manger collapsed under star taking us nowhere. Family fled to a desert mounted on a giant rat covered in velvet. Time elapsed. We travelled a while. Mother left us. Our legs on high alert. Then real exodus began. I learned to be a cursed witch on a stick, took a few songbirds, untranslatable books, wrote back endless letters as my mouth got more stitches. They called me once, twice, stop. I died near a brook. It all happened a long time ago. No one now remembers this story. Let me tell you how it all happened. How we once turned unholy. Thank you. This poem is, the imagery in it is just just amazing. And it just brings up so many questions. 
I think one of the more familiar images is obviously the manger, the star. I was wondering if that was done on purpose, if that's something that you had in mind when you started writing this poem, or it kind of organically came into the poem. Well, actually, this poem began as a sort of extrastic exercise. Mm. I was writing poems based on the work of uh, Hieronymus Bosch, mm. uh, the Netherlandic artist. So I wrote many poems about, or based on, on the you know, famous paintings, you know, The Garden of Earthly Life, Stefan Meiser, The Ship of Fools, um, The Wafer, drawings. So I wrote sonnets and many, many poems. And one of those poems was based on, on one of the paintings by, by Bosch, where a manger appears. And in fact, the images in the sonnet I wrote mm-hmm. refer to the painting. Mm-hmm. Um, I was telling my own story. Um, So in a way, it's not a direct response to the painting, but the painting sort of um, inspired me to write about my own story or or a kind of fictional story of my life. Mm. Mm. And it's a poem that in in a way refers to that sort of um, early life in in Argentina. And and of course, the images I use are, as I said, are related to that kind of very well-known painting, a very, very religious painting. Uh, my mother was very religious and, um, and I guess that had a, a, quite a big impact on me. I'm, I'm not a religious person at all, mm-hmm. uh, but she was and, and she appears in the poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the other questions I have for you as well is how much of it is based on your own life? And I guess, I mean, there are biographical elements mm-hmm. in the poem, but this is not necessarily, of course, I mean, there are things that are very surreal, the, the, the imagery is very um, fantastical in a way. And, mm-hmm. and so there are, there are elements of my life there, and also sort of fictionalized story of my upbringing and, and my family back in, our, in Argentina. And I use, formally I use this kind of Shakespearean sonnet, English type of sonnet and it's very different from the Spanish sonnet so you know I wanted to make a point of writing with this Shakespearean sonnet about you know, this person who comes from I mean you can't tell in the poem but I was seeing my family and my story there but it, you know it's a mix mixture mm-hmm. of all of things it's, it's, the, it's the painting it's the, the visual language of the painting there are aspects of my life um, fictionalized aspects and maybe things I dreamt or I feared or someone told me about aspects of my family members, you know what I mean? And, and then it mm-hmm. all comes out in the, in the, in the poem. Yeah. And, and I, I do like it. Although some of my poems are quite autobiographical, this one in particular is more surreal. Yeah, it is. One of my favorite Netherlands or maybe Flemish painter is Boigel, so is very close in mm. time and style. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, in fact, I went to Prado to look at, you know, closely to look at some of his paintings, like the Conjurer. It was a, a, a big exhibition. Mm. I think it was 500th anniversary of his death mm. uh, a few years ago. So okay. that's how it all began. Okay. Uh, I think I mentioned it initially in my earlier versions of the poem. I mentioned the fact that it, it was based or inspired by, a, by the painting. And, and then I, I decided not to mention this because I thought in my sort of close readings, it might take the reader to look at the painting and, and I just thought it's inspired by the painting, but you don't need to know that mm-hmm. it you know, comes from that painting. Yeah. Right, right. I think for, for our purpose, it, it makes a lot of sense to know that then the phantasmagoric aspect of the uh, poem makes sense because this is that sort of style of painting is is really just like fitting as many aspects of life as possible in one sometimes is a triptych and sometimes it's just one panel but usually small panel yeah. too it's like so much yeah. detail yes exactly yes and if i do have loads of triptychs i i, I wrote many triptychs where it's all you know again you know so it's just kind of the story of my coming to the UK, for instance, and each triptych is almost like a, a section of my life. That's when, you know, when you look at the, the triptychs in Porsche, you know, there's, there's so much happening, and, and then you have this kind of line, you know, that narrative line 
beginning to the end or kind of procession or the beginning of the earth and then a garden of earthly life in separate spaces and times and and I thought, you know, that that's such an inspiring thing. And, and as you said, you know, there's, there's so many elements involved. There's so many things happening. There's kind of irony and violence, hellish motifs, and, and the sort of they're very surreal and playful and erotic. And so there's so many elements. And you can, that's probably one of the reasons why people look at, for instance, the Garden of Earthly Life and, and they can spend hours looking at this painting because it's just so complex and has so many layers. I have to admit that one of the aspects of posh visual language that I, I really I was captivated by was mostly you know violence and, and horror and, and hell and, and mostly because I, I come from Argentina and you know it's a violent past and, mm-hmm. and some of the poems I wrote you know deal with that violence mm-hmm. um, political violence and social violence for posh in a way he helped me to kind of talk about these issues I mean in these cases they're very more personal story, but but there's there's violence there. There's very dark elements there. Yeah. Yeah, as you said, there there is definitely a lot of dark imagery. The mouth being stitched. That's both in that sort of painting. You do find the physical torture that. in the hellish landscapes that he paints, as well as also, as you mentioned, Argentina's past. I remember there's a beautiful movie, I think it's called El Secreto en sus ojos? Yeah, in some ways, it's like the book 1984 because it's a love story set in an incredibly time of turmoil and time of dictatorship. And it shows how that necessarily changes the relationship. You talking about it reminds me of there is some of that element in your poetry as well. And it made me wonder because... I don't remember the exact time of that period in, in Argentina. I, so I don't know if that has anything to do with the fact that your family or you left. Uh, yeah. Actually, not, not personally. I, I, I came to the UK in 1997, mm. and the dictatorship took place between 1976 and 1982. Okay. okay. But you know, I know many people who came because of dictators between the 70s and 80s to the UK. Right. Um, it wasn't my case. Right. Um, I was born pretty much during the dictatorship. Right. And so in a way I experienced it as a child. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I, I was a teenager. I read the Mass, the book that sort of details the, the, the atrocities and the disappearance of thousands of people and tortures. And also learned the history, the bloody history of Argentina, mm-hmm. the, the way that the country eradicated the, the native population in Patagonia and many parts of the country, what we call the Campania del Desierto, the desert campaign, where mm-hmm. the whole Patagonia was pretty much, the indigenous population were completely wiped out mm-hmm. in that part of Argentina and in many other parts of Argentina. Mm-hmm. And, and also it's bloody history, you know, since then, since the 19th century, various uh, dictatorships. Mm-hmm. And so, that you know, it's a very complicated and complex history and, and in a way I think that's something that still, although the, the last one was very, very bloody and, and, and violent, the one in the 70s, um, mm-hmm. there were many other before. And I, I guess there is this undercurrent of violence somehow. I, I always felt that way when, when I was living there and, and since I moved to the UK I was always interested in kind of exploring that. Why did that happen? Why something so awful happened dark in a way? So many people kept silent and, and knew people were just being speared and, and tortured and, and, and killed and nobody spoke and you know those those issues appear in, in my poetry mm-hmm. uh, sometimes not overtly but mm-hmm. something directly in, in the imagery or the violence or yeah the language yeah and because it started as a extractus a poem it's in a way for people who don't know where you come from it's a little bit difficult to separate the two, right? Because it's sort of one weaves into the other. And the Bosch painting is just such a good background to, in a way, to describe something like a bloody dictatorship because it's basically hell on earth happening. 
Exactly, exactly. And I remember writing the first few poems inspired by Bosch, and uh, and they were very descriptive, and you know, it was almost like an exercise, just what I'm seeing when I'm looking at the um, Garden of Earthly Light. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I was talking with a sort of an editor, a friend of mine, and, and, and she was saying, look at those themes, you know, and, and why you want to write about those things. And, 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 and then slowly, my own story, the story of the place where I come from, appeared within the, the, the painting and in, in my poem. And during that process, my father got very ill and, mm-hmm. and passed away. I was, mm-hmm. I was in, in the UK, and it was at a time where I was writing a lot, and I was working on only Bosch. So that also appeared in, in the poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was looking at all these images in, in the paintings, and in fact, the Meister, for instance, is one of those. But even, I mean, so many paintings in uh, Bosch. So it kind of really, I, I was talking about you know, the, my father as well and the, the, what happened to him. So in a way, it was a very uh, interesting exercise in a way. And, um, and I spent years actually looking at painting mm-hmm. and exploring different ways into the poem, as I said, writing um, villanelles and sonnets and syllabic poems and all sorts. And some of those will be included in the collection. Mm-hmm. A series of poems based on, on Bosch that are, are going to be part of my collection. Okay, great. Is this going to be in there or is this in another collection? No, it's going to be in my debut collection coming out at the beginning of 2021. Right, um, no, I, I meant the this particular poem, is that going to be in, in oh, that? Yeah. I'm not sure if it's going to be included. This poem, I don't know if you know, but won a very well-known prize in, oh. in the UK. Uh, last year I won the Keats Shelley Poetry Prize with the Holy Family. Mm. Um, the judge was uh, Michael Rosen, a very distinguished poet and, and novelist. So it gave me a lot. The poem kind of gave me so many good things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure if I include it. Perhaps, perhaps I'll, I will include it. But I, I, I do have other poems that are similar and are newer. So perhaps I'll, you know, I'll, I'll include those. But it, it is a possibility that, that we will have the entire family in the, in the book. Right, right. It was really interesting because I was the first non-English or native uh, who won the, the prize the first time a Latin American or Latinx poet won it. Mm. So I was really pleased and happy. Yeah, um, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting, again, going back to this, even though you have plenty, plenty of imagery to work with, and we could just talk about this for like the next 10 hours, this poem, because it contains so much, not just in relation to the painting, but as your editor said, the things that in your life and also in your upbringing that made you concentrate on his particular style of painting, the pandemonium kind of style of painting. So going back a little bit to that, my mouth got more stitches. It's also interesting for me, knowing a little bit about your background, about how the Latin American community in Britain Though there is a large diaspora, it's not as uh, well represented in terms of maybe for people who are looking at the literary landscape, if they just skim through it, maybe they don't encounter as much, even though there are plenty of, as I said, the diaspora there. So it's interesting to see you saying you wrote back endless letters as my mouth got more stitches. It almost feels like you are being forced to anglicize yourself. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I think that's kind of the, mention, the, the, the idea behind that kind of uh, line. Mm. And, and I think that there is an image in one of the paintings by Bosch with uh, a person with stitches right. um, in, the, in his mouth. So, so it came, visually came very directly. And, mm-hmm. and then, of course, I was talking about this idea of you know, untranslatable books mm-hmm. and, and this idea of, kind of moving from one culture to the other. And that kind of second exodus, the exodus of the cultural exodus, the, the linguistic exodus. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, those are, are the themes, the big thing, things for me, and, and they will appear in the collection as well. Um, mm-hmm. This idea of moving from one place to the other and what happens when you move from a place with one language to another language, one culture to another culture. I, I remember being a journalist and trying to explain sort of correspondence in the UK for various Latin American magazines and are always fascinated by this idea of 
how to translate one culture into another, how to explain to my readers in South America how the UK works and, and how they, the British people think and, and, and behave and, and those things. Mm-hmm. And, and imagine when that is happening within you and, and you know, yourself are going, you know, you, you are going through those changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it's a process that happened in many years. I've been here, I've been in fact, I began working in Spanish and then moved more to, towards English and I was reading mostly in Spanish and then began reading more and more in English and, mm. and, and those things. So, you know, there are two exodus, of course, the exodus of the family moving and then, you know, myself moving, yeah. Mm. It's really interesting to to talk about family, to have poems that talk about family because it's almost intentionally personal. It invites sort of this breaking of privacy. It invites uh, voyeurism in a way. Uh, and, and, you know, depending on our personality, sometimes it feels incredibly uncomfortable, even though it's one of those things that we kind of need to write, especially as poets, because poetry tends to be so personal. So, and as poets, we bleed on the page. And some of the earlier traumas in our lives make us bleed even more and maybe even more fantastically for those who are reading. There is something to be said about how we as poets and writers write works to be consumed and how bleeding on the page sometimes is almost an exhibitionist act. Mm. Yes. Yes, I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm fascinated by, by personal history, but also by fiction in that. The, the, the fact that we can, as poets, write about things that happen and might not happen. Mm-hmm. And imagine for possible upbringings or possible lives or possible ways or ways of being your own history. And that's why I'm, I'm really fascinated. You know, in, in, in narrative, happen, it happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Novel, you know, I'll allow to invent personas and invent stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that. So in a way, yes, it's true that when we write about our own experiences, sometimes it feels quite voyeuristic. Mm-hmm. But I love those moments where poetry, you know, allows that space where you don't know exactly the thing happened, it, uh, and it, it might not be important actually, um, mm. because you look at the poem as a, sort of, as a separate entity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, and you imagine that person, and you might connect to that story. So that's something that I, I always found fascinating in, in poetry: the fact that you can look at a poem and and, and see things that talks to you, you know, that kind of relate to you in a, in a very personal way. You might just feel connected because something similar happened to you, or you know, someone who went through a similar experience. Right. So, and I'm, I'm always, you know, it's almost like psychoanalysis, you know, the moment you write about your past, you kind of, you know, where you are inventing it, you're mm-hmm. kind of adding things, you the way you, you can say it in so many ways, you can, you know, the words you choose, you know what I mean? It is, it's, there's so, so many ways of writing about your life or your ex- own experiences that I feel that that's something quite exciting about poetry, uh, uh, that history can be told in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the things that people who are not as familiar with poetry or the act of poetry writing, how they distinguish between poetry and prose is that they uh, might think of poetry as always personal, always a first-person story, whereas you can invent, you can fictionalize just as other literary writing, prose format, you can also write fiction. And in fact, I, I wrote a series of poems about British explorers who were into Argentina in the 19th century and 20th century, and I, I did a little bit of research about their life, but mostly I, I invent emotions or I invent dialogue. So, you know, I'm, I'm allowed in poetry to write fictionalized or partly fictionalized, but what I'm trying to say, I'm really interested in, in the other way around, mm. British going to Argentina and, and that exchange and, and the traveling and the migration mm. aspect and, and the kind of what they found when they, they got there and, and the language problems. So, you know, it really can lead to so many exciting places when you don't need to kind of write something that is... Because even when as you're writing it, you are somehow fictionalizing it. And uh, yes, 
Right, right. And part of it has to do with the, how we remember things, right? Because when we recall things, we are not recalling the actual event, but we're recalling the last time we recalled something. Or, or, or someone saying to you things, or maybe looking at a picture of you when you were little and, and you know, just seeing the, the photograph, and maybe you can't remember that moment, but because you saw the picture, you, you kind of invent that moment or you kind of color it. But yeah, it's true. It's, and also it's very selective. It's, it's what you remember mm. and what you don't remember from right. that history and, and what you maybe don't want to talk about and, and, and what you really are interested in. Those maybe little features. I, I was always fascinated by, by the houses I live in and, and kind of specific corners in, in, in the house um, or objects that I remember. Those little details can, can say a lot. And then, but yeah, they're very selective. My sisters, for instance, can't recollect or can't remember things that I, <laughs> I write about. And, and, mm-hmm. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And since you mentioned the psychological or psychoanalysis aspect of writing poetry, I kind of picked my poem, That Single Memory, in response to your poem, The Unholy Family, because it's also about family. So I'm going to read that, and then we can talk about it. Again, it's called That Single Memory. Laughing until I'm rolling on the floor, my parents holding hands, Standing over me, bodies convulsing with giddiness. What was the dance they were trying to learn? My memory is hush about that mystery, though I do see a record spinning on a portable, floating, lopsided, as if it's on the twilight zone. Perhaps this happy moment seems ominous because it is the only I cling to. Perhaps that's why I constantly wait for the other shoe to drop. Bah, brush it off. There's always time for misery. It's really, really good. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. Um, I found many things in common with my, my sonnet in many ways, but I love those spaces in the poem where you, you don't really know what's happening and you're sort of guessing. And, and the way that goes from the first word of the poem, laughing, that kind of immediately takes you, the reader, from a very specific place. And then the last word, misery, um, it's, such a, it's such a nice trip, you know, from one to the other and, and what, what's in between. Mm-hmm. And again, what you remember and you want to remember and don't want to remember. Right. Those things that we, we were talking about, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Um, really, really fascinating poem, yeah. Thank you. Again, it's some of these, you know, you talking about the Bosch painting also made me realize how much there, there is that aspect of it, the surrealism of it, the mentioning of the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Just memory itself being in, in a way surreal, not really because of the selective nature of it. One of the things that really stood out to me in reading and hearing your poem is the velvet cover rat, <laughs> which like I, I was just like, what is that about? <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, my poem, you know, that image, again, comes from one of the paintings. Really? Uh, it's a rat cover in, in velvet, and, and I just thought that it was such a wonderful image. Um, yes. So powerful. Um, this idea of the exodus, you know, you kind of, uh, we're all on top of a, this rat covered in velvet. It's kind of, you know, there's all these hidden secrets, so all that's happening underneath under this velvet, this kind of, luscious textile yeah the velvet i also have existed for me have this kind of religious connotations as well as i mentioned before my mother was a very religious person and mm. she would take us to church and and you know in buenos aires there was this church it was very very ornate and, and lots of bloody christ and, <laughs> and and virgins with this sort of velvet sort of costumes and mm. and yes so i guess you know that visually as well was quite striking for me as a as a it was I was wondering in Buenos Aires, especially, but maybe in Argentina in general, do people dress the idols in actual material? Yes, some, some of the virgins are dressed in, in, in textiles, very rich, very mm. ornate, mm. velvet, and, and very dark. And, and I remember the one 
and that we used to go was called Sagrado Corazón, and there were all these heart parts, mm. bloody parts with sort of pierced with all these daggers, and, and it was just very bloodied and very um, over the top and, and almost surreal mm. and, and dark with candles. So, as you can imagine, I mean, not as extreme as Spain or Italy, but you know, <laughs> some churches in, in Argentina can be very extreme. Mm. Uh, so I guess I wasn't following the, the, the actual rite of mass. I was more interested in what was happening around me with all these idols, statues and painting. <laughs> yes. It, it is a lot. I mean, it's a lot of stimuli for a child, for anyone really uh, going into ornate churches, as you said. I remember running into a French woman who said she's not as much of a fan of the Sicilian churches because they're just so ornate and reminds her of a cake. <laughs> yes, she's very baroque. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And also like some virgins that cry blood. And so that is really like it's almost like out of a movie um, mm-hmm. some of these some of these images yeah it's interesting how those disappeared in, in the poem actually via via both mm-hmm. and, and it's very religious paintings it's interesting because i wasn't looking so much at the kind of religious aspects of the painting but more of kind of the narrative um, mm-hmm. story that Bosch was telling you know this family the exodus family all these animals and all these kind of monsters or half monsters half human the witches crossing on sticks mm-hmm. um, brooms. Um, so yeah, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's very interesting for us, right, um, as modern humans living in a, a time where movie is the predominant or, you know, uh, moving images rather are the predominant media that we associate with. Similarly, you find this in, in my poem, you know, the mention of the Twilight Zone. Um, the surrealism, even though they might invoke images of, let's say, what you have seen when you were a child in church, in Argentinian churches, the images that we recall are the more recent ones that appear on film, which is somewhat anachronistic because the filmmakers must have taken the inspiration from the churches or their past or childhood experience just as you have. So it's, it's, it's really interesting how we as modern beings relate using the modern media that we have available to something that's been around since the beginning of human existence, something like family, something like how family interact with each other, how violence uh, occur, things like that, and how we use our modern life to express that now. Yes, exactly. And I, I, I do feel like, I mean, with Bosch and so many other painters in, in, in this case, you know, I mean, we're talking about someone who painted over 500 years ago. And for me, some of those paintings, they talk about issues that are very current and relevant right now, mm-hmm. uh, like death. And, and the fear of dying and plagues, mm-hmm. and because back then there wasn't any you know modern life, no computers, no television, no radio, mm-hmm. and yet all of those really important themes and issues that kind of interlinked with humanity and, and the human being, I, I I do feel connected very directly to, to, to those in those paintings. Sometimes it happens to me when I read Virgil or Homer. Mm. Or, or the pressures, you know, so many of the classics and the, the Greeks. Um, mm. They wrote so many, many, um, you know, hundreds of years ago. Still, they t- talk to me some, somehow about themes and, and, and issues that are very relevant and very, very important right now uh, to me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it makes sense because we are all humans. Mm. It just shows that we haven't really changed much over the, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, these, these elements are still very much relatable, too relatable. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I mean, in, in, even in my part, this whole idea of the exodus, which mm. is something so timeless in a way, in terms of humans moving from one place to the other, this exodus, you know, religious exodus, and it's like an epic. And still it's just so current and so 
now, you know, still people move from place to place and for various reasons. So, in a way, you know, those things haven't changed as family. A lot of things family change uh, with time, but you know, the, the idea of the family unit is rather not a matter. I think the, some of the writing, some of the details might be changing because there's more focus now maybe coming into focus of the family unit being made up of slightly different parts, especially over the past, I would say, three, four decades, people coming out of the closet, family units being reinvestigated to understand that it's not necessarily a father. A mother could be multi-gendered, differently represented as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing some of the the writing that becomes quote-unquote popular culture in the next decades, and mm. seeing how that changes even as the idea of family remain intact. Yes, that's a point. Yeah. I think I, another reason why I picked my poem is also because of this is one of my more surrealistic poems uh, as well, whereas I don't tend to write. I have to actually make an effort to write more surrealistic poems. Right. Yes, that line embodies convulsing with giddiness, and I love that, that line. It's absolutely wonderful. And it's so visual uh, as well, because you can see the hands holding hands and, you know, and the, the, the record spinning. There's just so many elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, plays the reader in that moment and in that place, and yet it's a, it's a memory, and then you can take us out of that as the poem sort of finishes. So yeah, it's a really, really fascinating way of talking about that experience or that moment or that memory. And yeah, as I said before, what you tell and what is not there, and you presume or assume, it's, it's a really interesting. I, the Twilight Zone was something that immediately took me to my poem because of that, exactly the, 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 the surreal elements mm. and the kind of other, otherworldly and sort of um, almost like a fantastical kind of and really interesting, yes. Yeah, yeah. And for me, yours as well, it's, we, we cover, um, I, I think the progression is different, right? Because my progresses from something that seems really happy and then into the ominous and then into the the suggestion of something that's really horrible. <laughs> yours is basically, um, you start you, not not only with your title, but even just the first line where you said, uh, at least as unholy as my mother. So there's already a sense of the family being condemned in, in some ways. And again, it sits in that space of living under the, in a way, I guess, the judgment of the church. Because, yeah. So, yes, very much so. And I wonder, is this something you felt having to live under such influence of the church? I don't know how you, being who you are as a person, how you feel about whether or not it restricts your personal freedom or your sense of personal freedom. Yes, definitely. I came out when I was, I think, 19 or 20, Mm. as I was moving to the UK. But I I didn't talk to my parents. My, My mother... I died when I was very young, mm. when I was 13, mm. and I told my dad many, many years later. Mm. Um, and yes, of course, yeah, the church was always this kind of oppressive presence in a way. I mean, my mother was also the head teacher of my school, Catholic oh, school. Wow. So uh, there was another, an extra pressure there. Mm. And, um, and yet, I, I felt quite connected to her, mm. and we were really close. So although we didn't connect with that aspect. I sense or I felt that she knew who I was back mm-hmm. then, and she sensed that I was different. But yes, definitely in Argentina, a church, I mean, that obviously now it's, it's all different, and it's, more, it's just a completely different country from the country I left in you know, over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's, it's more liberal than many other countries, not only in Latin America, but in the world in terms of mm-hmm. rights for LGBT community and kind of the new laws, same-sex marriage and, and, and so many other uh, new laws. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and also the church influence, I think, diminished 
mm-hmm. which is uh, still very powerful uh, with you know in, in society there especially with abortion still is having a, a big impact on, on, on some of those issues but I think with the LGBT community, not so much, not as before, mm. like 20 years ago. So yes, it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting because my mom died when I was 12, and just before that, she was very ill. Um, mm. So it was just the, the first few years of my life, really, mm. when I felt that she was, um, and she took us to church every Sunday. She was very, very, um, she, we had to go with her, so there was no question about it. Um, mm. And because she was a, quite a, a well-known person in, in the community, because she was a head teacher of the main Catholic school in, in, in that town, mm-hmm. everyone knew her, and there was that, you know, she would take us to church and people would know who we were, and mm-hmm. they were expecting us to behave in a certain way. So I guess that was yeah, another pressure. And then, you know, since, since she passed away, I think my relationship with, with the church and with Catholicism changed radically. Mm-hmm. And uh, that last time I went to church, I think, Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, because of coming out, they kind of felt that there was no place for me there, and, and I always felt an outsider, always. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's ironic because you're, what you're describing to me is basically the public image of the current pope, who is from Argentina. So exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, the, the current pope is Argentinian, and, and many people uh, go to church and are very religious, but it's definitely less so. Uh, than 20 years ago, and other churches like Evangelicals, and, mm. and, and but the, the younger generation, I don't think they, they, they go to church at all, but they, so you know, the influence is, is definitely less so than, than before. But mm. you're right, yeah, the, the current focus is Argentinian, mm. that tells you a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he he's also at least on the surface the the his public speeches and the, the his also trying to reform the church in Rome um, that his policy seems to be very tolerant of of the LGBTQ community also even very liberal on the on the idea of priests marrying but then there's there's pretty much like no room for negotiation when it comes to abortion <laughs> like exactly and there's a big, big fight and debate in argentina that kind of happened in the last few years where it really polarized the whole society that mm-hmm. uh, and also the me too movement in argentina mm-hmm. uh new in you know the, the movement actually in argentina the movement against Femicides and violence against women. Mm-hmm. Um, so that everything really kind of congregating, kind of fossilized in this kind of huge movement in the last few years. And and the church was very much against mm-hmm. you know, abortion and, and that was kind of pro, the so-called pro-life kind of movements there, mm-hmm. uh, and still is. And and I don't think the, the country, the Congress, they're going to vote very soon, and we will see what what happens. There's a chance that they might, you know for the law. I think at some point the Catholic Church is going to need to realize that if it wants to continue as our whole human race wants to continue, we kind of do need to have some aspect of control over population. So. Mm, exactly. And also with the LGBT community as well, because still there are some sectors of the um, church that are very much against, actually the Catholic Church is against same-sex marriages mm. and, um, and so many other points related to the LGBT community. So mm. I think there's a lot that needs to be changed in my, in my view. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I think the maybe the Unitarian churches tend to be a little bit more um, in keeping with the times at at this point in history. Not, yes. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, that is a whole other can of worms that we can't get into <laughs> right now because that's just like the next twenty podcasts basically. So, <laughs> so on, on that note, just to wrap up, if you can. I would love for you to tell us if you, I don't know if you, you probably don't need to go to any open mics, but maybe out of your own curiosity, if you go to any, if you have any favorite ones, and then how people can follow you. Mm. I have many events organized this year, uh, live events, mm. um, because there was an anthology published uh, in November last year right. called uh, Un Nuevo Sol, uh, British Latinx Writers, and I was one of the parts included. 
And as part of that, um, there were many, many events planned in literary festivals in the UK and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and sadly, most of them were cancelled. Mm-hmm. And although we did some, some events online, we are waiting for things to slowly start to reopen. So mm-hmm. some of those might happen as if you know we get out of the lockdown. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm going to be reading in October um, mm-hmm. as part of a Utah Literary Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be reading with two other US Latinx poets and uh, Latin American poets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's via Zoom and you need to register. But if you Google my name and Utah Literary Festival, you can get all, your, all the details there uh, in October. Okay. And uh, and also, uh, I'll be doing more workshops with the Poetry Translation Center uh, mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. And again, that's going to be advertised in the Poetry Translation Center. Mm-hmm. And we will be doing more readings with the um, Magna Poetry, the uh, issue that I mentioned before mm-hmm. uh, that I edited. Mm-hmm. And we will be organizing more events soon. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how people can follow you, then, so they can find out all this wonderful events that you'll be doing, do you have a website or social media where they can get that information? Yeah, I tend to put everything on my Twitter account, uh, which is at Leo Boyd, L E O B O I X. And I do have a page, but I don't update it that often. So I, I rather have people look at my, my Twitter account sure. or Twitter page and where everything that I do goes there, and perhaps on my Facebook account as well, Leo Voice. Okay, okay. Um, so those, those places, yeah. Okay, so both of them are Leo Boyks uh, with no dots or underscores or nothing, right? Just together? Just, yeah. Okay. Exactly, yes. Cool, cool. Okay, well, um, I'm really looking forward to checking those out, so... I can start attending some of these events because it's always so inspirational and also generative in terms of my own writing and and just hearing other people's perspectives. So thank you very much for your time. I I really appreciate this. Mm, Thank you very much, Imogen. It was lovely to talk to you from here in the UK. I'm excited to be part of this project and um, and this series of podcasts. And I thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you. Thank you. Aside from all the exciting events Leo will be participating in at the Poetry Translation Center, Magma Poetry Magazine, and also at Utah Humanities. You can also find his work on exhibit at Kew Gardens in their Travel the World exhibition from now until 16th of October. If you're in London, make sure to check that out. You can call them to make a reservation for a safe visit. And you can find out more information about that by going to q.org and search for Travel the World. Again, that's q.org and just put in the search term Travel the World. I'm also including the link in the episode notes so you can look in there to check it out. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to poetsandmuses.com and our SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcasts wherever you listen to your podcasts. So please search for us, Poets and Muses, and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. I hope you have a safe and wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.